responsibility of government to make corruptible funds available to the ANC cadres. Kethla, once a criminal... Details. SAFM, rewarding your active citizenry. The Jet Set Breakfast. Music, culture, lively and critical discussions on SAFM. It's the Jet Set Breakfast. Don't forget, after 9 o'clock, our guest presenter with her guests and her own readings is Pat Horn, and she is the Collective Bargaining Project Coordinator for the Women in Informal Employment Organization. On the line, we have the author, Andrew Harding, and he is a BBC correspondent, an award-winning foreign correspondent, also the author of the book, These Are Not Gentle People, published by Pan Macmillan, South Africa. The story is set in the small farming town of Paris in the Free State, and These Are Not Gentle People tells the story of the death of two black men. The accused were a group of white farmers. The book reads like a thriller. There's a courtroom drama. It's beautifully written, but it leaves a bitter taste in one's mouth. For even if this is a microcosm of South Africa, it reverberates like a stone sinking in a pond, ripple after ripple of horror, tragedy, and highlighting the overarching violence of our country. On the line with us is Andrew Harding. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Michelle. Thanks for having me. An extraordinary read, and as I say, um, certainly in a way leaving a bitter taste in one's mouth. Andrew, um, I wonder if you could start with a short reading from the book. Oh, thank you. Yes, I've chosen uh, to start with the beginning, uh, (laughs) rather than giving anything away, because as you say, it is, I've tried to tell this story as as a thriller, uh, as a mystery. Uh, So let me start with, with chapter one. They ran as a pack, 16 feet pounding and scratching the hard earth, heading south with the low sun picking them out like a spotlight, dark silhouettes against the drought-bleached fields. The white woman saw them first. They're here, on the farm. They're crossing our land. She could see five figures, two men and three lanky dogs, perhaps a little over 200 meters away, their long shadows flickering, first against a water tank, then slowing and shrinking as the men ducked under a barbed wire fence. The woman stood near her small run-down farmhouse, her back to the motorway and a mobile phone to her ear. She was a stout, straight-backed, unflappable woman, glad to see the end of this nonsense. On the phone, she told the others to head towards a clump of blue gums at the southern edge of the property. They could corner them there, and the rest would follow. Within minutes, she saw the dust from two cars begin to converge. And then, as the word spread, more cars and more clouds of dust turning pale orange in the fading light. You know, Andrew, um, when I started reading this book, this idea of the dogs, the dogs who belong to the man who is purportedly attacked by the two men who are running, and yet the fact that they join the two runners uh, in their escape, and I'm putting that all into inverted commas, of course, is so strikingly uncomfortable. And it, it, I, you really touched on that. But I'll start with the first question, and I wonder if you could briefly tell our listeners the narrative, which obviously it is in many ways a thriller, it's a true story, it is a courtroom drama, but perhaps just give uh, them the overarching narrative. So, uh, as you got a hint there in the opening lines, this is about a farm attack, or rather a suspected farm attack, that happened in January 2016 when an elderly white farmer pressed 
a panic button um, and essentially informed his neighbours, most of them his close relatives, that he'd been attacked on his property by two black men. The response was quick. The men all jumped in their cars, headed towards old Ludi van der Westhuizen's farm, and then began to fan out, looking for these two suspects. Uh, they found them pretty quickly and cornered them in a field, arrested them, and then over the course of the next few hours, assaulted them. Oh, at least a dozen men there admitted later in court that they had taken turns in hitting the two men. Now, as far as the white farmers were concerned, this was a legitimate arrest. Yes, they roughed these two men up, um, but these two uh, farm workers had attempted to rob one of the, the white farmers, and many of these white farmers held in their heads the memory of a vicious attack three years earlier on a white couple who ran a tuck shop in the nearby community. Um, both of those elderly white people had been tortured and then killed. And so there was a real fury in these men's minds as they confronted these two black men. The next morning, after the two men had been taken away from the fields, they were pronounced dead. Mm. And that's where things get complicated, as you can yeah. imagine. Firstly, because, of course, it's very hard to pin down who actually struck a fatal blow, if anyone. And then, of course, it got even more complicated because the issue of what the two black men, Simon Chubebia and Samuel Chika, had been doing at that farmhouse began to blur because they told their friends, they told their families that they were going to ask for unpaid wages. So you, you've, you've, you've nailed it because what you talk about is the complexity of the story. And I was wondering when I was reading it, there are so many complex stories in South Africa, but complex stories that make up the brutality, as I mentioned earlier, the overarching violence of our country. And I wondered why this particular story captured your attention when there are so many like this story. Well, it was a gamble, if you like. I, I chose... I was looking for a trial, a, a crime story that I could follow from as close to the beginning as possible to the end. And so I heard about this story. I realized pretty early on that not only did it cut against the grain of ordinary farm murders, it, it was much more complex, much more counterintuitive, and then as a result perhaps would reveal more about South Africa than a straightforward um, farm murder, if you like. And so I essentially took this on as an experiment. I decided that I would follow this, and I realized again quite early on that it became intensely political. As mm. the bail hearing began, I could see this young uh, magistrate in Paris coming under huge political pressure from her bosses, from the ANC, from um, campaigners in Paris to get tough on these farmers, to deny the first few that were arrested, to deny them bail. And I realized that this might be a story that could explain to an international audience, as well, I hope, to a local audience, more about South Africa. And as you mentioned, um, this currency of violence that mm. is so kind of well understood here, and yet um, 
so often it, it's told in very brief headlines, and I had yeah. the luxury of some time uh, to be able to dedicate myself <laughs> over what, of course, ended up being far longer than well, anybody expected. In that's why. Case. That's why I'm laughing, Andrew, because you say uh, that you know you talk about the time and you talk about following the story, and. Um, if this were a TV series, if this was a, for example, a murder thriller or a murder drama on TV in fiction, it would have been very long running and it would have taken plenty of seasons. And certainly I, I wondered following it in the flesh that was like, is this going to come to an end? No. And then, of course, COVID stepped in. So the case was not finalized for, for quite a long time after the actual event. Yes, and I mean enormous stress, as you can imagine, for everybody involved. For the yeah. for the farmers and their families, the men uh, accused, the six men who ended up in the dock, um, you know, enormous financial pressures on them. Of course, particularly for the families of Simon and Samuel, mm. who were hoping this could be wrapped up soon, who are still wondering whether they might ever receive some sort of financial compensation for the loss of their of their sons. And Andrew? Okay, we seem to have lost Andrew, but let's, uh, we're going to get him straight back on the line. Just to note that we are talking to Andrew Harding. He's a BBC author, journalist, award-winning foreign correspondent, and uh, he's just released a book called These Are Not Gentle People, which is published by Pan Macmillan, South Africa, and focuses on uh, the death of two black men in the small farming town of Parais. We have him back on the line, Andrew. There's a relief. Thank you. Andrew, what I wanted to ask you was, and you've just mentioned it, is that there are incredibly powerful moments in this book with I'm going to say the supporting cast, but indeed they play the leading role in the book. It's the wives, the mothers of the murdered, the daughters of the accused. Um, your empathy for everyone within this uh, unholy circle is, is apparent. Well, I mean, again, this, this was not a plan. This was how the book and the process evolved because, of course, I couldn't talk to the accused themselves. Yeah. And, you know, their lawyers were making that clear. But I was, over time, and it, as you said, it took a long time, um, but that time, I think, allowed other people involved in the case, as you say, the mother, particularly of Samuel, uh, one of the dead men, um, she took me into her confidence uh, and was enormously generous, a, a very courageous, tough woman who wanted her son's story to be told and realized nobody else was interested. And also to, uh, to Ricky, the wife of accused number one, who was the mm -hmm. son of the elderly farmer who'd been allegedly robbed. And Ricky, again, um, opened up, wanted to tell me the family story and the impact it had had, the extraordinarily brutal impact this cases had on her family. So yes, what, what I came to realize was, as I was researching and writing it, that ultimately this, this is a book told by women. It's, it's a mm. story about male violence. Absolutely. I think, I think that transcends race uh, in some respects, but it's a story about male brutality and violence and Absolutely. about the women who, who bear the brunt of it often because I was astonished by the number of women I came across in my research who, uh, to some degree, uh, more or less, ha had experienced 
you know, male brutality in their lives. Yeah. You know, if I'm not mistaken, it was in fact Ricky, one of the wives of the accused, who uh, mentioned the title, These Are Not Gentle People. Was it, it was Ricky, was it not? It was. And, you know, for the longest time, this book had a very different opening chapter. It had a very different title. Um, and slowly over the years, um, I guess things drifted away in terms of the, the, the narrative got sharper. And I realized that this phrase that, that Ricky mentioned to me one day somehow summed up a lot more about the book and what I, what I, actually been writing than the initial title, which was Crater's Edge, because, of course, the, the two men died on the eastern fringes of the great meteorite impact site, the Vredefort Dome, the oldest and biggest meteorite impact site uh, in the world. We, we are talking to Andrew Harding, and uh, he is the author of a book called These Are Not Gentle People by Pan Macmillan, South Africa. They're the publishers. Andrew, we're going to go to a break, and when we come back, I wonder if we could just uh, go to how you dealt with um, remaining objective, which is indeed, and indeed the importance of being perceived as objective by all the people you spoke to uh, in the writing of the book. And you touch on this right at the end of the book, which is, it's quite profound, actually. So when we come back, I'd like to look at that. The Jet Set Breakfast. Music, culture, lively and critical discussions on SAFM. We're chatting to the author of a book called These Are Not Gentle People, an extraordinary read by Andrew Harding. Andrew, I mentioned earlier that uh, at the end of the book, you, you do uh, offer this rather interesting take of how you actually went around making sure that everyone perceived that you were objective uh, as you went day to day to the courtroom. Perhaps you could just describe that for our listeners. So I'm an outsider here. I'm, I'm British. I've lived abroad for the last 30 years. And I was very clear to all of those involved that I didn't have an axe to grind here. Um, obviously, I've got my own opinions, but I, I recognize that this was a very ambiguous story, and that everybody mm. involved had very clear perspectives on, on a, you know, events that seemed very diff different from where you stood. And I wanted to embrace that ambiguity. So, yes, outside court every day, I wouldn't huddle with one group. I would do this sort of choreographed move <laughs> between the... Uh, you know, the white farmers, the accused, and their families, then to those who um, were now cooperating with the Hawks, with the prosecution, to the families of the two dead men. And, and I would sort of rotate, if you like, and try to, to make it clear to them, um, as I think they came to understand, although I don't know that everybody will be happy with what I've written, but I, I tried to make it clear to them that this was not a, a book with an axe to grind or a particular perspective, even though, of course, I'm not pretending I'm entirely objective here. I have my views and I, mm. you know, I have some editorial role in shaping the material. Um, but I did want to give everyone their say and I did want to embrace the ambiguities of the, of the heart of, I think, so many of these sort of stories in South Africa. You know, um, what does become clear in the book is, is and, and I'm going to add an addendum to this, this question, is how the state failed the two dead men and one of those moments, the deeply poignant and tragic moment, is the fact that both state and defense did not even bother to identify the two men, either living or dead, correctly. Indeed, and this is something that, I, personally, I found increasingly shocking and angering. I, I am aware that a, 
a murder trial, a double murder trial, is about the living. It's about trying to secure convictions by the prosecution and, of course, to, to find reasonable doubt. Um, it's not about Simon and Samuel. And yet I was staggered, particularly from the prosecution. As you say, the state here from, from the get-go, from the hospital doctor who misdiagnosed, allegedly, one of the men, uh, to the forensic experts who, whose post-mortem was absolutely ripped apart in the witness box under cross-examination, to the prosecution and the Hawks whose um, evidence was, as you say, sort of missed out some of the basics. It, it failed to present in court a, a credible account of mm. who was Simon, who was Samuel, who did what to whom. And in the end, the, the prosecution basically, I think, argued on, on a, the grounds of common justice and common purpose, saying, look, we don't know who delivered a final blow. We can't tell, implicitly because we haven't done our job, but in practical terms, the basic facts are that two men were assaulted by a group of men. We put some of them on trial. Isn't that enough? Mm. Um, and, and the judge obviously had to make a, a difficult decision. You know, the difficult decision, the men were acquitted of murder, and, and I'm not uh, giving away a secret. It's, it's obviously known. Um, had you expected that? Well, you are giving away a bit of a secret because the astonishing fact was, of course, that after four and a half years, um, the media, and I don't blame the, the media here at all for it, but the media had drifted away from the story that had just, you know, slipped away from the headlines. And, and I was happy of that for myself to have a story all to myself, virtually. Uh-huh. And there were some Afrikaans journalists in court, I think two of them at the end, a local paper, uh, included in there, but none. This was a story that, that drifted away, like so many stories in South Africa, of course. And that's just, you know, a global issue when you have, you know, the, the breakdown of, of the media world here, you know, the, the struggles of, of local newspapers and local radio to, to, to find funding when the internet is, is gobbling up all the cash. And so there are real institutional and structural challenges for South Africa, as for so many countries, in following this sort of case. Um, was I surprised? Um, I suppose I'd, I had an opinion, and I was surprised by the verdict. But actually, I think given the way the trial went, given everything I'd come to see and the mm. failings we described, it, it wasn't that a surprise, no. Yeah. Finally, um, you know, Andrea, I'm, I'm always interested in how you report back on South Africa, um, certainly for the BBC. And you talk about the ambiguity of um, a story like this. And as I mentioned up front, this is in many ways a microcosm. It's a bit like throwing a stone and watching the ripples and the ripples and the ripples. And I recently heard you talking about um, South Africa in a from our own correspondence on the BBC. And I there too, you, you, you end with this extraordinary um, take on the ambiguity of a country like South Africa, that we are this, but we are also that, and we are that, but we are also this. And you, you, you've, you've obviously picked up on that. It's a very tough country to cover for, a, for a, an international audience because you can pick the most gloomy aspects and you can be absolutely right and you can pick the most positive and also be right and so it's a hard country because of its inequalities and its history and its struggles it's a hard country to sum up um 
And I think the problem for South Africa is that, of course, it's on this continent. So it's often that South Africans and the wider world tend to reach, for example, like Zimbabwe or Somalia when they're saying, where will South Africa go? Whereas, of course, the reality is that South Africa is much more like Argentina or Brazil or Turkey, one of these Mm. developing countries um, with an awful lot good and awful lot going for it. And therefore, the likelihood is, as we see with COVID, that there will be horrific examples in the Eastern Cape of appalling corruption and mismanagement and unnecessary death and the rest of it. And there will also be heroic and really impressive ministers and doctors and officials who are doing their jobs and rising to the occasion. And it's quite tricky for journalists who are looking after all to get their voices and their stories heard in this sort of very large, competitive global market. Um, It's very hard to, you know, pick stories that over the course of a few months will will capture all those ambiguities. Hmm. And of course, we'll always be criticised for, for in that instance, when one tells a negative story, of, of only Andrew, I want to say thank you so much for joining us and thank you for a fascinating read. It is well worth it and beautifully written. As uh, uncomfortable as it is to read, it is really beautifully written. So thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Michelle. Really appreciate it. Andrew Harding and the book is These Are Not Gentle People. It's published by Pan Macmillan in South Africa. Well well worth the read. If you're looking for a book to read, which really, as I say, comes across as a courtroom drama, a thriller and uh, the like, except that it is for real. And I suppose talking about South Africa, we always talk about uh, race and black and white. And yet perhaps this truly is a country of many shades, as Andrew said, an ambiguous country. So thank you to him for that. We're moving into nine o'clock. It's uh, been a great conversation and we'll continue to bring you books that we think uh, are fabulous reads for you, our SAFM listener. Nine o'clock.